Hello and welcome to, do we want to label the podcast now or no, instead of just saying the podcast? The podcast? Yeah, we should probably give it a name. It has a name. Uh, all right. Yeah, we gave it a name. Uh, welcome to Books We Pretend to Read, which, uh, you know, we don't pretend to read them, but, you know, Chuck and we, I... Is, we read them so that you can pretend. Yes, that's, that's it. Yeah. I've gotten questions about that on Twitter. Uh, so do you guys just <laughs> pretend to read these books and then talk about it? <laughs> <laughs> that would be more fun. I'd, let's do that from now on. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, we, we actually read the books that I would say that, in general, people pretend to read. Or in my case, I'll read a couple chapters and put it down. This week, we're talking about The Lean Startup, one book that I can definitely say I don't pretend to read. I've read this book numerous times. It's a book that I like quite a bit. Um, and I was uh, happy to go through this book once again. Because this book always gets me thinking about entrepreneur things and vision and just doing cool stuff, which, of course, is part of the reason why I typically get a few chapters in this book and I have to stop because it just makes me think. And I'm like, <laughs> I got this idea. I'm going to run with it now and build an MVP real quick. So, yeah, Lean Startups this week. Or I'm sorry, The Lean Startup by Eric Rise. We got it this time. Yeah, like, we, we don't it. have to yeah. go searching for the author By Eric Rise. In this book, uh, for those that have uninitiated on The Lean Startup, one, I would highly recommend you read it. I'm not sure if everyone here is going to agree with me. We're supposed to save that for the end. But uh, I don't care. It's, it's a good <laughs> book. I've already said I read it multiple times. Basically, the book is bro broken down into three parts. The first part is about vision, uh, basically how you would define where you're going. I know one metaphor he brings in the book is that if you are going to from point A to point B and there's uh, in a car, right, and there's traffic, you don't just stop if the traffic is, is dead, dead and decide I'm not going to go to point B. You, you, you find an alternate route. And so a lot of what he's talking about is having that vision and how you do that. And the second part is steer. And I think that would be kind of those alternate routes, uh, such as a pivot, uh, which he goes into. Pivot is you know, something he talks about a lot, which is the idea that when you find that traffic jam, you find something that's potentially stopping you from that vision or something you find that's completely tangential to what you were originally planning on doing. You can actually pivot and go uh, a different direction that's potentially more profitable for your business or persevere, which is, you know, what it sounds like. Just keep going with with your vision. And then the third part is about uh, accelerating. Uh, you know, once you've got something going, how do you grow it to be something really big? And he has various things he brings up throughout the book. I was joking with uh, Chuck earlier today that even though he breaks this into three parts, vision, steer, and accelerate, what I really remember uh, from reading the most is uh, his methodology of how you do this of build measure and learn. And he pitches this idea of a different type of accounting that we need in startup communities because he talks about vanity metrics a lot yeah. and how these metrics are used, you know, how, how many lines of code did you, you know, ship or put into production this week? These are vanity metrics that really mean nothing. And he says that you need a different type of accounting and that accounting should be about what did you learn? which is fundamentally very different. I know working in a large company myself is very different than what you would normally measure. So he says, that's what we need. We need a different way to measure building software. He talks a, a, quite a bit about waterfall versus agile uh, development and the, the continuous uh, development cycle, uh, which I think for the most part, I know we don't talk about what companies we work, we work for, Chuck, but I think for the most part, uh, our companies have moved to the agile very type much. cycle. Yeah, very, very much. And if you're not familiar with that, just think of like a waterfall. Think of like a Windows release, uh, you know, happens once every three years. They probably stop writing any kind of new code, new, new updates, enhancements six months or a year before the final product release because now they go through QA and all kinds of other stuff. Whereas Agile, those cycles are broken into a much, much shorter. In fact, the shorter the cycle, the better is the idea. A handful of weeks, yeah. typically. 
Waterfall and Agile is probably a di completely different book to even talk about. But this book is uh, just kind of talking about uh, how do you build a, build something small, how do you test it, how do you put it out in the market. And one of the big things that I've taken away from this book numerous times is this idea of building an MVP or a minimum viable product. We were joking about our first episode of this podcast was a minimum viable product. The idea is to spend the least amount of money to get something out there to test the market, to see is there a market for your idea, because you want to learn as quickly as possible. And that's kind of the entire purpose of his, his methodology. Yeah, that begins that whole cycle. And you sort of validate and measure, you do the learning, then you come back and lather, rinse, and repeat. Yeah, and he talks about uh, build, measure, learn might be the, the process, but he said you actually want, when you're considering how to do it, you do it in reverse, that you decide what do I want to learn and then how am I going to measure that learning and then let's go build that thing. And so he says when you're, when you're trying to picture it, you, you do it backwards, but then you execute it the other way around. So it's kind of a, a cycle, this build, measure, learn cycle. So anyway, that's uh, the synopsis of The Lean Startup. And joining us this week is Jim Flannery. I always want a subject matter expert to join us whenever we cover a book. And The Lean Startup, it just seemed Jim was a perfect person for that because Jim actually has been around this entrepreneur game for quite a long time. He, uh, he and I met because he started in, my, in the town I used to live in, Athens, Georgia, is where the University of Georgia is. He started, I believe you actually started for Athens, which is kind of this tech incubator there. Correct. Okay. I guess I should open more yeah, open-ended open questions yeah. and just yeah. yes or no. Um, you want to share Why a little you bit tell us about, about that? that? Sure. So it's a, effectively a collaborative co-working space and incubator where we help new ideas launch. Um, I think sort of the core of where we pull on Lean Startup is an accelerator program that we've been running for four years now. Uh, we've probably helped 350 teams at this point. So really at the sort of genesis of this idea, you know, really almost at the at the pre-build stage, figuring out what do we want to learn, how do we go about measuring that, and then what do we want to build at the end of that. So we worked with some, you know, really fascinating companies. Two of the companies um, that we started out with about four years ago, you know, are in the 30 to $40 million range in, in revenue at this point. So it's been a fun time. And I, I've been there. I've been inside that uh, building. We've had a few meetings there in our in our past. I've also been at one of your competitions. I forgot what that competition was that I got to judge at, but that was a pretty fun thing where you had a bunch of kind of a Shark Tanky uh, style uh, thing where a bunch of different uh, companies pitched, and I think the winner got like $5,000 or something. That was a pretty cool competition. I, I don't know if I ever said thank you for inviting me to that, so thank you. You're welcome back anytime. That's, it's pulling teeth to get people to come judge those things. <laughs> I, I thought it was great. It was just really fun to see these college kids uh, do that style and the guy that won was like this ice cream thing. I thought it was a pretty cool little thing. Oh, yes. going. Waffles and ice cream. Yeah. I anyway, uh, <laughs> so you did you did for Athens for a while, and I think through that you ended up getting connected with ATDC. And, and if you if you're from Atlanta, you and in the t high tech industry, you probably know about ATDC. For those of you that aren't from Atlanta, that's kind of our. Um, it's Georgia Tech is one of the major. I don't know if they're the funders, but I know it's in Georgia Tech. But it's a big startup accelerator, and if you're in Atlanta, you know about it. It's a it's a big deal, and you you were working there as an entrepreneur in residence, right, for several years. A startup catalyst. Mm. Startup catalyst. Can you? We we won't define what that is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, effectively, I was able to work with a lot of teams one on one. Again, coaching them through this this process. Yep. And you did that for several years, and now you uh, are a professor at UGA. Teach entrepreneurship in the 
Terry College of Business, uh, work with hundreds of students trying to start companies and uh, get to learn this process over and over again every day. How do we, how do we teach entrepreneurship? And I think really uh, one of the key questions in this book is, is can you teach entrepreneurship? And this book comes down on the side that you can teach entrepreneurship. I teach entrepreneurship and I don't believe you can teach entrepreneurship. <laughs> did, did I just hear what I think I heard? Yeah, absolutely. You, you teach entrepreneurship, but you don't think you can teach entrepreneurship. Right. Wow. Mic drop. Okay. Yeah. Um, should we uh, take a break real quick? And when we come back from that, come back for break, let's definitely dig into that one. So um, we'll be right back. Welcome back. Um, Jim, professor of entrepreneurship, UGA, <laughs> who can't teach entrepreneurship. Impossible. Yeah, doing he the impossible. He just lost his job. Hold on, wait. On I, didn't, I didn't say I can't teach it. <laughs> I, saw, I said I don't know if you can teach it. Elaborate. I, so I, I, I think that all of these books that are focused on entrepreneurship attempt to do is lay down a philosophy that is the way to build a business. If it was true that there was one way to build a business, any of these people that are writing these books would have just gone and built another business, retired on the beach somewhere as a billionaire. Um, mm. This is the the gold rush concept of, you know, the way you get rich is you sell the shovels. The mm -hmm. lean startup in, in essence, in my mind, is selling shovels. It's, it's pontificating on a way to start a company but frankly, it's really hard to see the data that says that this makes companies more successful than some other manner in, in starting companies. And, and I believe fully in this concept. This is what we teach. We teach Steve Blank's, uh, you know, customer discovery. We teach all of this lean startup methodology. We use business model canvas. But I still don't know if we have definitive data that says this is the way to go about building companies. One thing that always speaks to me is that there's. I still work for a large company. Chuck, you still work still for work a large, large company. company. Yeah. I've, you know, speaking of golden shovels, I own two copies of this book and I have it on audio. Uh, <laughs> How's so that working for I'm you? I'm buying, yeah, and I still work at a large company. So I, I definitely get that. And it brings me to kind of this question of why, you know, that, that gene of entrepreneurship, if you will, of wanting to just go out there and do something crazy. For me, uh, reading these books, it's as I age, it's harder and harder. Whereas I remember quitting my first IT job. I, I was IT manager for you know a smaller system, but it was painstaking uh, to quit that job and start my own company. That was difficult, and it's only gotten worse as you know my career has gone up and I've you know get paid better. That gene is still in the brain. Like that's why I read this book as many times as I've read it. Is that I have so much desire to go out to build something. But all this, all this training, all these books I read, and there's still that initial push that whatever it is, that gene that I, I, I don't know if I have it as much as other people do, or maybe just that life event hasn't occurred in my life to really push me over the edge. But I don't know if that's, you know, what you're getting to in, in not teaching entrepreneurship, because I do feel like there is that something that some people are just a lot more daring, daring naturally yeah. as who they are and who, the, who their character is. 
Well, so I love the uh, focus, particularly in academia, on attempting to sort of unpack this. Like, this is really interesting. This is, uh, I heard a quote, I don't know how true it is, I don't know who said it, but, uh, you know, this is like medicine in the 1800s. You know, what didn't kill the patient was proposed as a new <laughs> way to treat the patient. And from that, right, medicine has advanced in leaps and bounds, and we figured out a more scientific method to figure out what works and what doesn't work in medicine. And so I think that a lot of this belongs in academia, trying to figure these pieces out and working with all of these students who have all of these new ideas who don't have the golden handcuffs that you're talking about of, hey, I work at mm -hmm. a big company, I'm, you know, I've got a family, I've got all these responsibilities. It's a really cool test ground to work on a lot of this stuff. I just don't think we figured it out yet. And I think that anyone claims that we have is is crazy. In the bio of the podcast, I talk about how the, these books change with you know, the winds in the valley because it's always something new. I know that my company, we had uh, like four CEOs over the port, uh, course of four years. And one of our CEOs came in and was like, this is this is how we do it. I forget what the book was. It was Zone to Win. Who moved uh, my cheese? Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's another one, right? <laughs> but everyone in the company basically got a copy of Zone to Win, and that was another book I, that I went through. But to your point, no one's figured it out. Yeah, there's there's never going to be the one, the one way. Um, but I think, and again, I think that's what we're going to get into when we start digging into this, is it doesn't mean that there's not value in any given methodology. There's probably a lot of overlap as well. It's, I think a lot of them are many of the same concepts just presented with my unique spin so I can write my book and that'll be my business and how I make money. Um, was, was the MVP something he introduced or is that something that was kind of already floating out there before, before him? Anyone know that? Yeah. Google can check it. Yeah. No, I mean, maybe he... I don't even think he coined the term. I don't think, um, yeah. I would think it has to have been out there in some way before this. Because, I mean, that one of the things that I hold on to is this idea of minimum viable product. Because I think it's a really good thing to, to go for. And I did a design thinking workshop, which is another popular way of doing <laughs> way of companies, doing it, right? Yeah. It's a Stanford thing. And one thing that they had us do within the workshop was build a public website. Go ahead and put it out there. Like, you haven't even built the product yet, which seems so backwards to me. But it really lines up with Lean Startup in that you want to learn. That is the goal, is to learn. And what is a minimum viable product? For a lot of people's ideas, you don't have to build anything. You just need to put a f some kind of web front end out there, do a little bit of marketing, maybe some A-B testing to see, is is there even an audience for this idea of yours? That was that was one of the things, just to build on that point a little bit, that I definitely thought was an interesting, you know, it's, it's an interesting thought exercise is especially because I'm, I'm, I'm a developer. I like to build things, right? Like to me, building that product literally means building the product um, and, and having that shift in mindset of going, it, it might not even be the product. You know, he talked, he talked about in certain sections um, that the MVP can be anything but the actual product. It can be Maybe something that's you why literally I like do it, by hand. I'm not a developer. Yeah. So you're like, I want to build it. I'm like, no, thank you, Eric, because I can't build it. Yeah. And mine, my mindset is like, the product needs to be the product. And he's like, no, like you can totally fake this. Uh, and it can be an email, like multiple email addresses that forward to one email address that make it look like you got, you know, and like just a couple of people, two people doing everything by hand, like not a single line of code fulfilling this process, you know, going online, filling in a form or ordering a product. That's the Zappos and, and uh, shipping, thing, right? Yeah, the Zappos, yeah. That was a great example that Eric The concierge the uh, yeah. sort of MVP model was 
and and again, maybe that's obvious to many people, but like for me, this is my first time reading it. Um, for me reading that, I was like, yeah, that's totally true. Like on the other side of the curtain, nobody knows. You know, you just you inherently give the benefit of the doubt. We do that all the time. I I have this, uh, and I'm going to relay this to kind of a different, uh, slightly different topic, but like. Um, you and I have spoke at many conferences and things like that. The first time I spoke at a conference, I was like getting up in front of people and going like, I don't know that I'm an expert on this thing that I'm talking about, but to everyone in that room You're on stage. who's coming to see me talk yeah. on stage with a microphone on the podium, I'm an expert. Yep. Um, and this is really that same thing applied to like, this is my business. And you just assume if you see like an LLC or see whatever at the end of something or ink. Fake <laughs> uh, it until you make it, buddy. It's a business, yeah. So... <laughs> I found that to be a pretty interesting, you know, part of this, that MVP can be kind of anything because it really is just about going, do people even want this thing? And and the less that you can do and the faster you can figure that out, you know, the less work you can do and the faster you get that information, the, the better you, better off you are. Right? So just because I know people listening haven't read this book, um, let's talk about what Chuck was just saying in context of the book. There is an example of Zappos that's given. And the founder of Zappos, I forget the man's name, but uh, what he did is he basically put a web front end up, and he, what he wanted was the ability to buy shoes, or any type of shoe, and he didn't. He wanted to do it online at the time that was basically impossible to do. And so what he did is he went to the shoe stores and said, do you mind if I take photos of all your shoes, basically all your inventory, and if someone buys it online, I'll just come buy the shoe from you at retail cost. So the shoe realtors, they didn't care, you know, someone wants to buy my shoes. So they let him do that. And basically he did it at a loss for I don't know how long, but it was his minimum viable product. It wasn't about making money off selling shoes. It was, will people buy shoes online? That was what he was trying to learn. Again, keep in mind, build, measure, learn. So he wanted to learn, are people willing to buy shoes online? And of course, the answer was yes. He became the biggest you know, sneaker snails salesman on the internet, and Amazon bought them for what, $2 billion, $2 I think it was? Yeah, I think. So it's a really good example of of that. Uh, another example is not in the book, but a product I used a couple of years ago was Expensify. Expensify was like awesome because if anyone in large corporation knows doing expenses absolutely it's sucks. Yeah. It's like the worst thing about anyone's job is doing expenses. And uh, what Expensify did was you just snap a photo of your receipt and it will automatically find the what you bought, how much it was, yeah. and it'll fill out the form for you. And it was, you know, OCR, you just said OCR. Mm -hmm. But I had a very strong inkling that there was no OCR going <laughs> <Right>. on. That <laughs> right. it was just mechanical Turk looking behind yeah. and yeah. filling it out. And I actually tweeted them several years ago and they, they said, yeah, in some cases that's exactly what they do. So they were building the OCR that all those mechanism, but their MVP the was just let yeah. a human type it in. Yep. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know if they use Mechanical Turk or not, but but that was their their methodology is let's just give the feature the way people want it to work. And it doesn't matter the odds, what's going on behind yeah. the curtain doesn't matter. It, we just want to prove that is this something we want and we can build that at a later stage. But I, but I feel like that is, you know, to your point, Jim, I was like, this isn't teachable. But I, I think there are concepts and ideas in here that, again, for someone like me to have that sort of brain shift of going like, yeah, and, and I know that, right? Like, that's information I already know because, I've, like I said, I've played that game. I've been the expert that, uh, who wasn't necessarily the expert, right? But I, I was the expert to the room. But that shift in mindset for someone like me, I, like, I think there's value in that. I think it helps people build a tool set 
Yeah, to... so, so so I would completely agree with that, and I think that that's largely what we're teaching is is conceptual, you know, frameworks to shift people's thinking. Yeah. But I also see that as being some of the challenge. Great, we've shifted your mindset. We've given you a framework. There are a lot of holes in this it framework. Doesn't, right, doesn't mean it's going like to work. The, yeah. the brilliant Zappos test probably hides, you know, the, the hindsight test that we're seeing hides a thousand failures and a thousand sort of areas where what they were doing to stay alive, yeah. raising money, finding the right people, building this stuff, all seems so simple and glossed over. Well, there's a, yeah, there's a lot of sort of subtle brilliance in the, in the Zappos model of having those people be your warehousing and your logistics chain and, right, like, they're taking care of all that inherently when you're just the guy going, let me take pictures of your stuff and put it online. Like, there's a lot of sort of subtle brilliance in that that maybe he knew what he was doing and maybe he didn't at the time, but it certainly, I'm sure, it became obvious, you know, eventually that may not apply to a thousand other models well, where so, you don't get those benefits. You know, what I would like to see is the thousand Zappos companies that failed yeah, and learn how many of them did that exact did the same, same thing. test. Yeah. And, I, and I bet they're out there. And so, so that would be interesting to me. And, and absolutely, I agree that like creating these frameworks is important. My fear a lot of the time is that you either, one, fall too far into the academic side of this, which mm -hmm. is just learn all these frameworks, you feel really good about yourself, but you never go start Dude. something. Yeah. Or you try... Gunner <laughs> 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 pointing to himself. Uh, or, yeah. or you disavow all of this. And you say, I don't need to learn anything. I've just, the, the, as they talked about in the book, the just do it strategy of entrepreneurship, which is equally as, you know, improper and, and painful. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I just, I think that there is a balance. And I think that a lot of this book was actually written a bit with big corporations in mind and really focuses more on innovation mm -hmm. rather than entrepreneurship. Um, even the way he defines entrepreneurship in the book or, or a startup in the book, which is a human institution um, creating new products or services under extreme uncertainty, he leaves out anything about resource constraints, mm. which tends to be a key of entrepreneurship. Uh, what we talk about is time, money, people. You have no time because you have no money because you have no money to, or you have no time because you have no people and you have no money to hire those hire people. people. Yeah. Um, and he he largely ignores this extreme resource constraint. He attempts to propose that the framework is the way that you overcome this resource constraint, but if you don't have the person to build the product to begin with or the money to sit around for a year and test this thing, it becomes really unfeasible that you can even get off the ground. Right. Let's uh, take a quick break, but when we return, let's talk more about that entrepreneur. Uh, uh, what he talks about in the book about in, in, uh, innovation within a large corporation. Uh, we'll be right back. A lot of the book we've we've been talking about so far is about uh, entrepreneurship uh, and building companies. Uh, but many of us work at large corporations already, and he coined the term intrapreneur, which is something I've got quite a bit of experience with working inside of my company. I mean, I know Chuck, you've worked at companies inside like CTO office, like I do. I was, yeah. I I, I mean, I yeah, we'll have stories about that. I've you know 
Yeah, I got to walk this line a little carefully. <laughs> right. Because obviously it's where I work. And, uh, you know, recently at my at my company, I, I got to release an internal product uh, that was built from ground up. And that was a lot of fun for me. Probably one of the most fun things I've done at my company. It was a net new thing. And that's actually, you know, you're, you're talking about this book, Jim, and you know, maybe saying some uh, not as positive things about it. And I, I would say that when it comes to big company politics, a lot of what he's talking about in this book doesn't really jive with my experience. And I'm not, hmm. I'm not picking on my company at all. I think this is true of, of anywhere I've ever worked. Politics are a fact of life. I know you were talking before the break about, you know, resources. That's a big part of it, right? You're going to have VP that have X amount of resources that want to, you know, go after X, Y, Z. Where I found the most success is just finding that idea that has the right executive level sponsorship. That to me is where the, the highest level of success for a project will come from. If you actually have an executive that will take it and see it all the way through to the end, well, how's your internal, are you, are you waterfall? Are you agile? You know, your internal processes are your internal processes. Like you said, Jim, there's no one way to do this. And I think, you know, the company I work at, I think has some very good internal processes as I got to go through the release cycle. It was really cool to see how that all comes together, how you have all these or, all these different pieces of this organization that seem disjointed. But as you go through a release cycle, you can just see how the how the gears all fit together. But to the point I've I've seen, I mean, I've been in the CTO office for almost five years now, and I've seen a lot of ideas come and go. But the ones I've seen with the absolute most success are the ones that have top down buy -in. leadership buy in. The reverse and what this, you know, what he talks about a lot in this book uh, is the idea that, you know, the little guy can come up with an idea and, and run with it that I haven't seen so much of. And I, I don't mean that to come off negatively. It's just it's kind of just the fact of life. It's like there's no shortage of good ideas. Yeah, I think we have tons of good ideas. But to, to Jim's point. We also have a very limited supply of people because guess what? If I want to run with some net new idea, even if I think it's a billion dollar idea, we also have a billion dollar product out in the market and we have a lot of customers, you know, hundreds of thousands of customers and they want this feature or that feature. And we already have product managers trying to determine which of these features are going to make it. And so you go and say, oh, I'm going to take a couple engineers and go do something else entirely different. It's just fundamentally difficult. It's and it's political and it's financially difficult because you typically have built your entire company around a financial structure of making your core product successful and driving revenue. But but you see that these companies, the company when we've both worked for, you know, worked for or currently work for companies that have a process to try and foster that internal oh, yeah. innovation. We've, I think we've got great. We do hackathons. But, but that's what I say. We do, we do hackathons too and stuff. But what the question I wanted to pose, and I'd love to get your viewpoint on this too, Jim, is how successful do you really think those those are? Are they are they I think morale boosters no, no, to I give people the sense that. that you can be the little guy who's going to bring that great idea? Or right. some sometimes yes. But I, I think overall that's a different type of innovation. What I'm proud of is a product innovation brought in the market was something that doesn't, it ties into our vision as a company, but it's a separate, it's an entirely separate product versus hackathons typically are, hey, you've already got product X in the market. 
product X is driving billions of dollars of revenue, and I have this kind of cool way that we can mess with product X and potentially drive more revenue. That's what I was going to say. Those our, our can hackathons? be successful because yeah. they're tied to your core product. It's when you're truly doing innovation, and it's not. And that that sounds bad to say it that way because it is innovation to take product X and make it do something cooler and new. That is innovation. But I don't mean to downplay it, but it's a different type of innovation yeah. that I'm talking about when I say, you know, your company's building X, but I have this thing called Y, mm-hmm. and everyone's doing X, but this thing called Y I think could could drive it. that type of innovation is different, and that one's where it's a lot harder to go from nothing to something. But that's right, yeah. So I agree with you. Our our output from from my corner employer for for hackathons are almost always an engineer who's mm-hmm. always wanted to deliver feature X but cannot. Because and basically because they're under the, the hackathon burden. to show it. Yeah, because they're under the, and they do it in the hackathon to be like, see how easily we could add this feature, and yeah. and oftentimes that it gets into the product, like it works for it, the company. And that's a good thing. It works, yeah, and yeah. there's value in that. What what we don't currently have is that true internal incubator, but you have that. I know at you know your company, and I've done that at a previous company. I actually got selected. <laughs> I, I was going I remember, to do that, and, and and it got blown up. <laughs> yeah. So I did not get to I did not get to bring Y to market, but I had Y for a company. It, I it does happen, but like I said, and and this is where I don't think the book really talks about if you're at a large company, and I, maybe this is where the podcast is is like our actual expertise. Uh, yeah, in, where we is, are yeah. in this world is I just have found that if it's not something you're going to make X go a little bit farther. If you're really trying to do something net new and different that your company hasn't done, I really think it takes that top-down leadership. I mean, I'm saying even at the CEO level it, coming down. It, it, yeah, it does. Because typically it also is, uh, large companies is typically through uh, acquisition, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, book doesn't talk about, I don't think, at all. But, I mean, that's, you know, at a larger company you have hundreds of million dollars of, uh, you know, free cash flow to go make an acquisition. So I see that. And it's unfortunate, you know, other books have talked about like Cisco model of like doing internal, uh, you know, spin mm-hmm. outs and then buy them. And Google's buy them done out. a lot of yeah. that. I can't speak to that because I don't have experience with that. But, you know, the what I do have experience with is when I see a exec, executive level or just someone um, you know, like, um, I'll say a name here, Chris Fleck. Um, it's just he's VP. He's very strong. He's an engineer. You he's know, an Chris. yeah, I know Chris. Um, and just he's adamant, and that type. He's senior enough as VP level, but he's also just very adamant uh, about. He'll drive. He, yeah, he yeah, drives. And he'll just keep it going. Yeah. Even I've been in the meetings where uh, he was rejected on a on a product he wanted to bring to market. I'm, I remember like a month later, he's, he's a month later he's still working. I'm like, you're. I heard you got rejected <laughs> yeah, on that by no. your boss. He's like, yeah, I. I he just had faith. He, he just kept going forward. And there's something that tenacity uh, is something that I, I really respect him for um, because it does take the you just because you get rejected doesn't mean you, you end. You, you, maybe that's a pivot. right? Maybe that's something right. where you find a different way to continue to go after this vision. What well, what did you see on that? Jay? Like, So, you know, what I think this book does really well and everything that you guys are talking about is sort of encapsulated in Chapter 12 here where they're talking about innovation within big companies. Uh, what this book does well is provide these really great, clear frameworks to think about what you need to do, build, measure, learn. or mm-hmm. and, and and so in Chapter 12, what, what he's really talking about is here's all the things that need to be true for this to work in a big company. And so he talks about scarce but secure resources. And, and so that goes back to sort of this issue of politics and making sure that you're protected. And independent development authority, again, back to sort of this issue of, of the ability to do what you want. 
personal stake outcome, meaning making sure that the people that are involved are rewarded. And, and what he talks about very interestingly is that that's not just money. Yeah. And, and so I think, and that's, that's the startup world over. We immediately, when we think about how do we motivate people, we immediately think about money. And so often it's simply not about money. Mm. Um, it is about a title, which they're ridiculous in the startup world. Yeah. <laughs> but but it, it may be about the title. It may be about something, you know, status or, or uh, decision-making authority. To me, it's um, a challenge. I mean, I can speak from personal experience here. It's just the desire to have control and a large, especially if you're competing with a large organization, I can tell you it's a lot about politics and about um, trying to uh, get people to invest in your idea. But in a startup culture, ideally it's about being able to actually execute. So to me, the idea of give, give you a challenge and then give you the, the runway to actually do something with it uh, without you know having all these other obstacles in your way, that is really sexy to me. Versus, you know, I, a startup's never going to be able to match the pay I, I, I make, you know, because I'm senior level, whatever. You know, many years in tech industry, you get you get paid better. That Start. feeling of autonomy, you're yeah, saying, yeah, yeah. at I'm some sorry, point better, of having that. Well, so, and I just, I think that what this book, like I said, does well is, is lay out these frameworks. What it doesn't do well, good, <laughs> something. Um, is, is, more is the, weller. Yes, <laughs> more, more better. Uh, what this book. What this book sort of falls short on, and I think that most of, most business books fall short on, is the nuance. Is the, okay, well, if it's not money, you know, what is the what reward is and how do we think through that? And how do we think through that for 10 different people? How do we think through that for Jim or Gunner or, mm. you know, anyone else who wants to go start this? Uh, and, and so I think that in attempting to create a book for everybody, this book has is a is a great starting point i'd recommend it for anyone that wants to start thinking about how do you start something um but really and maybe this is actually by design this is a feature not a bug <laughs> is that he leaves holes in it such that you pick up the phone and you call him and he comes and he, you know, <laughs> he consults at your company and and for that i think this is a phenomenal tool to get people thinking about this but then if we look at you know some of the big companies and i was trying to do a little bit of research on on some of this you know who are the big companies that have adopted this that's lean yeah that's what i was hoping you'd have some insight um, on i don't <laughs> <laughs> um, but but so i looked at a few of them and you know ge is considered the, yeah the big one, one but you know what's happened to ge in the last three years not not much good we got a lot of commercials trying to get the millennials yeah. to come join them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's true. Well, well, so is so then. Then it comes down to you know, is lean startup a, a way to market to millennials to get them to come? Hey, we believe in innovation at our company. Um, and and I'm not that cynical. Uh, I'm an eternal optimist. Uh, but I don't know if we can definitively say that GE has significantly improved because of this. Right. I also think that the flip side of that argument is innovation doesn't happen in a structure, and so maybe this process of Build, measure, learn is, you know, 15 cycles in. And on the 16th cycle, they're going to break through with a trillion-dollar product. And then yeah. in hindsight, we can look back and we say this was a brilliant was strategic a brilliant, move. Yeah. But in the, in the world of corporate, particularly in the world of public companies, we don't have that luxury of, you know, taking the five-year view. And, and that's why, again, that's why I kind of drive to that. I know there are the internal incubators and stuff, and, and internal innovation, you know, accelerators, but I truly wonder how successful they are because I, I feel that same way. I feel like, and you know this kind of, like you're sort of given that runway and you either pass, fail. I don't know that, to Jim's point, maybe you were four weeks away, right? At the end of that runway, 
but like the big machines of business need to keep turning. And and in a large company, you're not going to get that. You can't pull those levers and put down the the emergency landing gear or whatever you need at the end of that runway to extend it a little bit more. You're just kind of giving your shot and you're done because to your point, the big company has other things to do. And it's like, well, we gave you your shot and it didn't work. I actually would go a different route with that because I've seen it happen in real time of using isolation. Uh, I've seen it successfully where you, you know, isolate a team, you know, it's a small team, because uh, that's kind of what he kind of recommends. Just about, like, yeah. you know, give, give them some people, give them some room to, to do some stuff. And the problem that, that I've, I've seen is how do you then unisolate it? So you're saying, yeah, you can run away, what happens in? if it fails? It's like, no, no, no. The bigger problem, yeah. if it fails, it's easy. Okay. I mean, it was a waste of money, but uh, it's, it's gone. But what happens if it's successful? What does it mean if it now works? Now you've got a, yeah. a problem on your hand that you've done this in isolation. And those things, and this is where it becomes really unfortunate because I have a lot of examples of this mm. before I, I joined my company of where you actually see these things. This happens through acquisition a lot uh, because that's kind of the same thing. You have something that's ha- happening in isolation. How do you actually bring it into the fold? Yeah. And, you know, to that, this book has very little to say. I know he's talking about it towards the end of it. But if you do find that runway, it can be very difficult because I've seen sales structure being a big reason why good product has failed. That's right. I, w- I wish I could shut off where I live, work right now and pick out, <laughs> pick out some other company. But I guess I can say it like before I worked at this company, I saw this. So maybe that's safer. I saw it when I was at Gartner. But <laughs> Citrix at the time had, what was it, Caviza. It was an yeah. acquisition. And later later renamed a VDI in a box. And this all happened before my time at Citrix. So well, uh, I, I feel I have a little bit of runway to talk <laughs> about this one since I'm not internal at Careful. the time of this. But I remember being a Gartner analyst at the time, and I really liked VDI in a box because it solved a lot of the problems at the time, right? Their hyperconverged infrastructure was not a thing, yeah. but Caviza was kind of in front of that. But ultimately, it became, well, this thing is going to cannibalize our main core business. Yeah. And at least from the outside looking in, that's kind of was. is like the sales guys have their, you know, their coin operated. And so how do you change your business model? And I think that's the problem you can have with these things done in isolation. The other thing that I've, I've also seen is, you know, you're, you've got more of an enterprise style, of, you know, salespeople with account managers going into ind- individuals. And then what happens when you have a product that's more uh, consumer driven? Um, it's, you know, really screws up your channel. So I, I, I see it as, yeah, there is the failed and, you know, that's a waste of time, money, effort, whatever. But I also think there's another problem of what happens when these things succeed? Yeah. Are you ready for it to succeed? Because it there is potential with some of these other side projects. I mean, Google, we see that all the time. Oh, there's a good yeah. one. I can talk all I want about Google. Yeah. We see that all the time at Google, right? How many, how many different messaging IMs, clients? Right, yeah. do how they many have? messaging clients can succeed and yet still yep. they ugh, holy and crap. So yeah. they die, they they I mean, who who knows what's going on over there? But there and those are really good examples of it's it's gotta just be really difficult because I think Google probably does foster innovation pretty well there, yeah. like Google X and others. But what do you do? Ultimately, someone's got to win this battle and the other ones have to die out. Someone's going to not be happy at the end of this. And I think bring the things back to core, back to what your central thing is as a company uh, is quite difficult. Well, I agree. Just bring it back to the book. There's there's really no advice on, on that. <laughs> yeah, there's really not. So that seems a good a spot to stop as any. So let's take a quick break and we'll be right back.
while we were on break, uh, we had a little chat, and Jim wanted to kind of talk about some core takeaways uh, that he took from the book. So, Jim, you want to jump on there? Sure. So, uh, like I mentioned earlier, I think that there's a, a number of really great, one, one of you coined the term frameworks earlier, that you can take out of this book. And, and two of the ones that really stick out to me in working with a lot of really young teams are this concept of the, the leap of faith hypothesis. The way that we talk about it and the way that we teach it is what needs to be true in order for a customer to buy. Um, and I think that he does a pretty good job of talking about how do you start to think about what these need to be. Now, I think that Steve Blank with the Startup Owner's Manual really takes that to the next step. Um, but I think that this is a, a core concept and a core takeaway for me. I think the second one is that you've got to test these leap of faith hypotheses off of your early adopters. Um, I have that book upstairs, by the way. That's another <laughs> book. <laughs> How far have you gotten through that one? Um, I don't know. That one's written more like a school book structure. So I don't think I've gotten too far on that one. Well, so the interesting thing that I find about the Steve Blank book, not that this podcast is about that, is that uh, oh, we'll probably do it. He talks a lot about how you're not supposed to read it <laughs> as we read the yep. the Lean Startup, for instance. Startup. He says that uh, you know, you read a chapter, you go do, hmm. and when the doing exceeds the learning from the book, you just Funny. put the book down. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's great. I think that that is refreshing, the refreshing honesty that you need that says that this can't be designed, starting a company can't be designed from A to Z. And and at some point, you're just going to have to kind of go off the rails. Um, even back to the conversation we were having before break about, you know, how do you know if something's working in a big company? He talks about metrics, and I also love that, uh, that he says that you don't know what those metrics are going to be in the beginning, but that you should start tracking things. Mm. And it's not the vanity metrics that are important. Uh, it's. I think he calls them the um, actionable metrics, and they have to be actionable, accessible, and auditable. Uh, and I love the, that sort of simplicity as well to give to teams and say, even though you don't know what your conversion rate is supposed to be, you've got to start tracking it um, so that you can figure out if this is a true driver of your business and what the number means. One um, of the sorry, one of the lines in this book that I that I really liked actually was, um, if we don't know who the customer is, we don't know what quality is. And actually, I, I thought that was like a really interesting, like, we don't even know what to make. Like, we cannot define who is going to be interested or, or like who we're targeting, what we're, what we're doing. Um, we cannot actually measure anything against that. Um, and I think that kind of falls in line with what you're saying. Like, you've got to have those, those metrics. That's, I think that that's key because he was talking about his own company and, and he was saying that, you know, the first customers, those visionary customers were willing to accept a duct taped product, a product that didn't really work because they were so delighted by some, you know, aspect of it. Whereas when you tip over into the more mainstream customer, we talk about sort of latent to visionary customers. When you start tipping over into, um, you know, later stage customers outside of those innovators, outside of those visionaries, the product has to look different. The product mm -hmm. has to act different. It just, it has to work at some point. Right. Um, and, and I think that that's a key in, in, Anything that you're building here. When you were talking about leap of faith, faith hypothesis, I was oh, said that really poorly. <laughs> Easy for you to say, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I was thinking about our conversation, Chuck. You and I had earlier today when I was pitching you my my billion dollar idea, <laughs> and then you just looked at me and said, "Yeah, but people use this billing system," and I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah." <laughs> <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> but that's kind of that, you know. Um, I had leap of faiths uh, in other areas, and in that one, I was very dead wrong. And that's, 
I think going to, to what Eric talks about in this book is that if, if I was doing a, a methodology of, let's say, waterfall or something, um, I could go and build this whole freaking yeah. thing and a year later find out the most simple thing in the world that you yeah. could have found out. I mean, and that's where you talk about MVP. Is that something you could have found out with just a simple survey even? Like, <laughs> right, before any product was anything. done. And those hypotheses that you come up with and that build, measure, learn, the idea of constantly test testing. And this is also very true in design thinking is that you want to get that what can I learn as quickly and as cheaply as possible to, you know, shut it down. You know, that's why you and I are having the whiteboard conversation earlier yeah. today. Yeah. It's like you learn a lot just on that. If, if this then... is where all my revenue is and then I <laughs> and I hadn't realized that people will, you know, are constantly using something else, then then there's a problem yeah, in this plan. Problem so, with my hypothesis. Yeah. Well, and a lot of what you guys are talking about, which is interesting, is sort of internal discussions within the team, and that's where it starts, right? That's the, what do we want to learn? And, mm -hmm. and so if we, like, were to if we were to sort of put this into practice here, what you guys are doing is the learning piece, right? What do we want to learn? And as yeah. Gunnar mentioned earlier, we think about build, measure, learn, but we build it out by thinking, what do we want to learn? How do we measure that? And what do we build? And, um, and, and a, another emphasis that I like in this book is that he's really all about get out of the building and talk to the customer. Yeah. Um, and yeah. this is a Steve Blank phrase, get out of the building, Holy. right? But yeah. it's, we can sit around and whiteboard all day long. You've got to put something out there. You've got to go talk to people. You've got to hear what they're saying. And I, I can get a lot of trouble with this. I, that's with this one. I'm like, Holy, I have so much to say on this. <laughs> it's, yeah, it, it's sad how, I'd say that there are some really good product managers that I know. And I'd think that is one way that you can measure them very quickly. How often are these uh, product managers interacting with customers? And I guess I'm biased here because that's kind of what I do as a job, right? I interact with customers. That's what I did at Gartner all the time, and that's the job. I see, yeah. I mean, look, I work for a very engineering-heavy company. Like, engineering drives things there. It's still, you know, we have all the other departments. doesn't really matter. Engineering drives things. And you really see so many aspects of, <laughs> again, we need to, toe this line here, but right. see so many aspects of so many features or, or, you know, additions to product that are built to so clearly to a spec to just this literal embodiment of this literal idea, which we, you know, believe, or, you know, we've done that measurement or whatever, and customers say they want this and it's delivered to this spec and it's, it's not at all what the customers want, right? They do want that thing, but they want it this way, not not the engineer way. They yeah. want it this way. And there was a running joke, too, at a previous company where we were all working remotely and, and leveraging our product. And it had some, some pretty serious, like, when you really tried to use it in the way that we said, like, this is exactly what this is built for, you really tried to do that. There were some gaping holes. And engineering was always like, what do you mean? It does exactly what it's supposed to do. And mm -hmm. it's sort of like, you know, it's that internal dog fooding, right? We all talk about it. It's like, if you guys used your own product to have to do your work, all of these things would be the top feed, you know, they the, all these things would get fixed. And it's the same things that customers are asking for that we were asking for internally, right? And And that resonated hugely with me of... You know, that entire learn and, and measure before you ever get to build, just ta literally engage the customer. It's the most obvious thing when you think about it. And it seems to happen so little 
uh, so infrequently I'd, past a certain size or whatever, right? Like there, once you kind of get those things, I think you there's lose that. can be reason for that. That I don't believe it's always the product manager's thought. I mean, yes, sometimes the product manager is just really busy, but who actually owns these customers is really the sales and account managers, and there can be some concern of do you bring this person in front of a customer? They may be an outstanding product manager. Yeah, um, terrible and, and in front of a customer. Exactly. I'm gonna stay out of the big company hierarchy here and just Sorry, say Jim. that <laughs> yeah big company well, on this side of the table well yeah. i'm just gonna say that though that's i think one of the key tensions in building something new is you have to get out and talk to your customer you have to get out and give them something but what they say is not always what they mean what yeah. they say is not what they always want and so when we work with teams a lot of this is one is this an assumption or is this something someone has told you and then is this something someone has told you or is this an action that they already take? And really when we think about discovery, um, and, and I think it's talked about a lot in this book, their v version of discovery is to bring people into the office and let them use the product and just watch, watch. what they do. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is a pretty new, you know, let's call it the last 15 years trend, um, which is bring people in and watch what they do. Don't just ask them about what they do. See what they really do. Um, because it's pretty hard to change set behavior um, but you can build better products better services better tools getting out in front of the customer is, is not taking what they say and making that gospel right it, it's understanding like you're saying it's understanding how they use the product but i think a good product manager understands that is because they're in front of the customer but they also can interpret that just because the customer says x doesn't mean i really want to build x i know this is so cliche i think you guys probably can know the quote that i'm about to say <laughs> Henry Ford, it's right? It's not true. <laughs> so, yeah, it's the, Henry Ford never actually said it, but it's it's said to him which is that if you ask customers what they want, it's to be faster horses. It just felt like it needed to be said. So I apologize for the cliche <laughs> quote. But um, I think a good product manager understands that you know, the, the real need here is I want to get from point A to point B faster, right? Yep. How can I get to that? And yeah, they're telling me this, but what is the core need here? And that's what is about engaging with customers is understanding what's really the core need that they have here. And I have I, I actually have good experience of that uh, when I was in IT uh, and I didn't do that. I'll share that story. It's a short one. I was doing VDI. This is like eight years ago. And I just treated it like uh, I was just going to replace all the physical PCs with the virtual PC. That's what I did. I did never talk to any of the my any, i mean it i've said this a lot since then it's something i learned it's something i preached from the stage at gartner was that it is a services industry um we don't treat it that way but it is and you're servicing all of these people that work in your in your business and i just treated like okay i need to do a pc refresh and so i do that with virtual pcs and i then i got a call one day and i go down i see everyone at a line to use a computer because they had always gotten a line to use this computer but they didn't realize that once it's been virtualized, like that computer is any computer any in this computer. building. <laughs> and it just took like interacting with that customer and understanding what their actual needs were. And I completely changed how that nursing uh, system worked just by a little bit of customer discovery, right. right? And it's such an important thing. I think that's something you can take. It doesn't have to be high tech product manager. Um, you know, if you're in IT, this, that they are your customer. And uh, are you really giving them the services that they need at their core or are you just you know kind of repeating what you've done in the past yeah we are coming towards the end of the show uh we're running out of time so before i wrap up jim unless you, you have something else you want to get at or i'd kind of like just uh 
a high level, what'd you think about this book? Yeah. Anything, Jim? Good, good, good book. Uh, with all the caveats I think that we talked about, anybody who's starting something, either internally in a bigger organization or just wanting to go off on their own, absolutely required reading. But make sure you find a bunch of good mentors as well. Chuck? Uh, yeah, I mean, generally the same. It, again, this was my first read. Uh, you, guys have, you guys have both read this multiple times. There's definitely good ideas and, and good tools in here. I think Jim put it best with... It is a, a methodology of a sort. Your mileage may vary, but certainly there are ideas, concepts, and tools that can be taken from this that I think are immensely valuable. Um, even if it's something, it, like I said, for me, there are a lot of those things that you sort of innately know, but it, it triggers it for you in, in a way that you hadn't thought about it, you know, to apply it or whatever. You, you knew it, but it, it, it gives you a method to apply it. Uh, I would say, you know, it is a, it's a really valuable thing, definitely a recommended read. I obviously will end this where I started it. I love this book. And maybe it is me buying a shovel in the, in the rush for gold. <laughs> in the gold rush. I'm okay with that. <laughs> um, but to your point, Jim, it doesn't mean I've gone out and become this awesome entrepreneur. Uh, even though I've you know read this thing, I think there is there's something innate that's in my brain. It's there, and it just hasn't like gone to the next step to really uh, jump out because there is the, you know, the more sensible side of me of, you know, kids and family and houses. <laughs> um, but overall, I think if you are wanting to get to start a business, my, my first business, I obviously hadn't read anything like this. My first business, man, I just made mistake upon mistake upon mistake. By the way, tangent on that, hire an accountant. I'm just going to throw <laughs> that out there. First thing you do when you start a business, hire an accountant. I'm just, that's, that's free. But uh, after that, I would highly recommend it. It'll be in Gunner's that. book. <laughs> the title of the book, Hire the Failed The Failed Startup. I can give you a name of a couple good accountants. Yeah. I have a story of uh, taxes I owed. I owed several hundred dollars, and this is, you know, small business, so only hundred, not thousands of dollars in taxes for failing to report that I owe no taxes. And I still have it. It's somewhere around here. I could show it to you. I'm, um, I'm in that club as well. You're in that. Oh, my gosh. I saved it because like, I can't believe I owe. It was like five or six hundred bucks because I failed to report I owe zero dollars. Wow, that was a tangent. But <laughs> if you're interested in it, in entrepreneurship, this is one of my favorite books. Uh, this book is kind of why I started this podcast, because I love this book. It has a lot of good theories. To, to everyone's point here, take them with a grain of salt. No one, nothing is perfect, but it definitely gives uh, some good pointers on what you should look for when building a small business or if you're trying to do internal innovation as well. So with that, thank you, Jim, so much for coming out. It is uh, a Friday night for us and uh, our fun, our wives are upstairs. Jim and I are upstairs at a bonfire. Uh, we are in a dungeon <laughs> in my <laughs> house. We haven't made a joke about it yet, but on closing, I guess we can uh, joke about the fact that we are Hiding in my basement. Work in progress. <laughs> the <laughs> water heater is behind us. It's got good sound in here. Uh, so thank you, Jim, for coming. Uh, Chuck, thanks for flying down from Chicago, buddy. Yeah. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, cool. And uh, hopefully all of our audio equipment worked better this week. Our <laughs> Fingers month. crossed. And uh, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.